0: Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney.
1: Welcome to the latest edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney along with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Here we are now at episode 11. Eric, they were telling us to throw in the towel after episode (laughs) 6, but we kept coming. They told us to retire fully after episode 9, but we're still here, man, and we're going strong.
0: Who Who is the they? They. You know, they. <laughs> I feel like I should know if someone's forces, telling us to get lost. Forces no. out there. Just <laughs> fired against us. I guess. But you describing us that way uh, definitely makes it clear that we are the Humberto Soto and Brandon Rios of podcasting. <laughs> uh, we're obviously washed, but we can yep. still entertain you for an hour. Yep. And you definitely don't <laughs> want to see us with our shirts off. Oh, yes, definitely. Yes.
1: Yes. In case you missed it. On Saturday night in Tijuana, Umberto Soto and Brandon Rios did dad bods everywhere proud. <laughs> <laughs> a tremendously gutsy effort. And we'll actually chat a little bit about that um, later on in this podcast. We will also preview next Saturday's World Championship Boxing Card from the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, headlined by junior middleweight action involving Eris Landy Lara and Brian Castagno. But the bulk of this episode has a decidedly transatlantic feel, more even than usual, um, one might say. Uh, We've got quite a bit of news to digest from the upper echelons of the heavyweight division, which by definition these days involves discussing a Brit or two. We have a British challenger for the guy who many people regard as the number one pound-for-pound fighter in the world. But first, we go to the O2 Arena in London, where on Saturday night... British heavyweight prospect Joe Joyce stopped heavier weight Berman Staverne. <laughs> and in a super middleweight grudge match, Chris Eubank Jr. floored James DeGale twice and emerged victorious to reignite his career and possibly end DeGales. Um, Eric, it was a unanimous decision win for Eubank in the world in the end, as you called it. Um, I thought some of the scorecards were a little odd. Uh, 114, 112, and 115, 112. Difficult cards to get to in a fight that has two 10-8 rounds and a point deduction um, to begin with. Uh, And not only that, I didn't think it was anywhere that close. Unlike you, I picked a girl to win. I gave him the first round and nothing after that. I had it 118-107 for Eubank. Personally,
0: I thought Eubank completely dominated him. Uh, How did you see it? Uh, To the surprise of no one, I scored it similarly to you. Uh, I gave DeGale, uh one more round than you did. Okay. So my tally was 117-108, uh, but this was not a close fight, and the scores were indeed weird. Either the judges all gave out an even round somewhere along the way, or they didn't deduct the point. I, I don't know. It's it, weird,
1: right? Yeah, yeah it,
0: it doesn't add up, uh, quite, quite literally. It, it doesn't add up. Uh, so I... I would like to actually see the scorecards. I haven't seen them posted anywhere online, but by the midway point of the fight, it was essentially over and DeGale was mostly just being tough and crafty and looking to tie up and survive. And to think that two judges, Howard Foster and Jerome Lades had him in range to win with two or three rounds to go is somewhat appalling, frankly, Uh, but the right guy did win. So, you know, it's not worth dwelling too much on. Uh, There was drama in terms of whether DeGale would last the distance, um, particularly for me because I had money on it. Uh, And uh, DeGale found a way to tough it out, even if it wasn't always appetizing to watch. It was a rough clash of styles. He had Southpaw versus Orthodox, young puncher applying raw pressure versus guy trying unsuccessfully to make it a boxing match. Uh, There was a wholly unnecessary body slam by Eubank for which he rightly lost a point. I would describe the fight this way. It was interesting. It kept my attention. <laughs> there were things happening, you know, knockdowns, yeah. wrestling moves, etc. But it wasn't entertaining. No, it was funny, wasn't it? It was
1: a funny fight it, in the sense that it, it – it, we talked beforehand about whether it could have some of the spikiness of, say, a Deloia Vargas because of what had gone before. And it had the spikiness, but <laughs> as you correctly predicted, it did not have the uh, – the the boxing acumen, the boxing skill, it, 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 after the first couple of rounds, I was like, oh, dear, what what do we have here? And yet as sloppy as it was, uh, as unskillful at times as it was, as uh, ugly as it was, I did find it compelling yeah. in a strange kind of way.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of what what I was getting at there with that things were going on. It, it was not dull. It was just ugly, but not yeah. not in a, not in a dull way, but also... I, ultimately, I wasn't entertained.
1: Right.
0: So one thing that did
1: entertain me ever so slightly, I'm quite easily amused. Um, uh, I also live alone, un- unrelatedly. <laughs> um, one of the things that made me smile a bit, and, and in a way was was perhaps sim- symbolic of, of of what Eubank did and, and what he's done for his career with this win, was in between rounds, you had Chris Eubank Sr. outside of the ring, down there on the floor, trying to make himself heard, with his bits of advice um while junior's new trainer nate vasquez gave him what seemed to me to be you know pretty calm pretty good advice and, and it was pretty clear that junior's eyes were fixated on, on on vasquez he was paying attention to his trainer there um and that we you know we talked about that going in you know how a 29 year old guy can he suddenly change gears can he suddenly decide to actually take on a new bo- a real boxing trainer for the first time in his career I don't know. Maybe this is a sign that actually having a boxing
0: trainer when you're a professional boxer is a good idea. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it it, gets, I, it can't hurt. That was kind of the <laughs> attitude coming in. And then the, the evidence that we saw in the ring supports that. Um, look, Eubank fought his most complete fight mm. um, against a credible opponent. Uh, on Saturday night, you compare this performance to how he looked against George Groves almost exactly a year ago. It's night and day, almost two different fighters. You know, was that because of the opponent uh, or because of Eubank? And if it was because of Eubank, was it because of his corner and, and the involvement or lack thereof of his father and the involvement of this new guy, Vasquez, I, you know, I, I, it's all really hard to say, not yeah. having been there to witness things. Uh, I, I, You know, I don't want to knock his dad. I don't know their relationship and whether his dad is a distraction. Um, To make this all about me for a moment, uh, I'll say that uh, I was uh, I don't live alone, but I like to make it about me on occasion. Uh, I was a tennis player as a kid, and my dad was a typical sports dad. Uh, He wasn't my coach. But he put pressure on me. He stayed on top of me about practicing and working out and all that. And when I was like 12 years old, I'd never won a tournament before. And then my dad was away on a weekend trip, and I won a tournament without him there. And I didn't know then, and I don't know now, whether it was coincidence or whether I played better and more relaxed without him Mm. around. Obviously, Eubank Sr. was watching in London on Saturday night. He was there for the fight, but... Does Eubank Jr. on some subconscious level do better with some distance from Mm. his dad? I have no idea. It's something to consider. Uh, But certainly it comes back to the idea that, in theory, having a full-time trainer should be a positive. All signs point to the fact that it it, it was here and, and that Vasquez is good for him, at least so far.
1: Hmm. That was an unexpected diversion into the life of <laughs> the You didn't, you didn't know about
0: my junior tennis career, I did you? I did not. I did yes. not. I back, did not build. back before I had these uh, hinky knees and this old man back and all these other <laughs> things that prevent me from uh, looking remotely like an athlete.
1: Talking of hinky knees and old man backs oh, and, uh, and, and the like. <laughs> uh, uh?
0: Um,
1: so you touched on this. You know, there are lots of factors going into a, a fight and... It's difficult to to separate what Eubank did from what Gail didn't do. You know, a lot of the discussion beforehand was about, you know, does degale have anything left? Is he is he with all the injuries that he's had and the tough fights that he's had and the fact that he hasn't looked so great over the last few fights. Um, in fact, to me, at times, he looked not just like a guy who's been through a lot of tough fights, a guy who's, you know, is 33 years old at the end of the career. His balance at times was awful. He stumbled after throwing his own punches at times. Mm-hmm. He was supposedly a master boxer who, whose boxing approach was to lunge and grab. He looked lost. He looked in early stages of being actually shot to me. Am I being unfair there or am I taking credit away from you, Bank?
0: Um Certainly some credit should go to Eubank. Um, he, he throws heavy shots. He used his youth and explosiveness effectively. He has the right cross. He mixed in the big looping uppercut. He might have been all wrong for Degale in that he was mm. physical. And, mm. and as Caleb Truax showed, physical can be bad for mm. Um But the other thing about the Truax fights... And I hesitate to say this because he was just a guest on our show and he's a great guy and a a great Twitter follow. And I don't want to be knocking him at all. So I'll hope to communicate this the way that I'm aiming to hope it comes across the right way. But Degale's two nip and tuck fights with Truax told us a lot. Uh, Truax Mm. is a good fighter, don't get me wrong, but he isn't an elite fighter. And Degale wasn't supposed to lose to him, really wasn't supposed to have much trouble at all on paper going into the first fight. So... We knew right then, well, he's not peak DeGale anymore. Right. And he continued further in that direction against Eubank on Saturday. He did look, if not shot, then not more than a step away from that designation. Um, This isn't the last fighter I'm going to say this about on the podcast this week, but I'd like to see DeGale give retirement some long, hard consideration. And you might have noticed the first thing he said after the fight in the interview, he said, I left my mark in boxing. Yeah, that to me was a pretty strong hint that, that he's got his mind on retirement. It speaks to a certain satisfaction with what he's done and to focus on that rather than talking about what he could still do or, or still aspires to do in the ring.
1: All right, so what about the guy who isn't clearly going to retire, uh, who sort of had a rebirth with that victory, um, uh, Chris Eubank Jr.? We talked last week about some of the possibilities at 168, and Eubank once again insisted post-fight that he's really a middleweight, notwithstanding the fact his last five fights have been at super middle, um, and that, you know, you should consider options for him at 160 as well. So who would you like to see him in against next?
0: Yeah, I know that he keeps insisting he's a middleweight, but I'm not buying it. Uh, He's weighed in at 167 or or above uh, for now counting this one. It's now six straight fights at that weight. Um, That's after having porridge, I think he said, and bagels. (laughs) Right. Okay. fine. Uh, But uh, you got to cut out a lot of porridge and bagels. I'm not saying he can't get down to 160. I sort of trust that he knows his body. So maybe he can get down there. But is that really his weight? I don't think so. He seems comfortable at at super middle. And I'm sure he'd love to make some money against a Canelo or a Triple G. But, you know, those fights don't interest me terribly. Um, Maybe a rematch with Billy Joe Saunders, who's mostly a Mm. middleweight. That's a middleweight fight that makes maybe a little more sense. But I'd rather see Eubank stick to the 168s, where he really fits right in with a bunch of top guys. Uh, If he's looking for a big fight in Britain... It's Callum Smith. Yeah. If he wants to make his US debut or invite an American over there to fight him, Eubank versus Caleb Plant interests me a lot. Mm-hmm. And and there are others. Um but this was this was a good veteran name in DeGale to get on his record. So next I'd love to see him in a serious fight against a fellow twenty something, like a Smith or a Plant, someone like that. Yeah. If not next, certainly by the end of 2019, I would love to see him have a fight with a, a top guy in his weight class, which I consider to be 168, whether he does or not, and right in his age class as well. Uh, you know, in, in guys in their prime, in their mid to late 20s, I think uh, I'd, I'd like to see Eubank tested in that way.
1: Okay. In um, the co-main event, you predicted a second-round stoppage for Joe Joyce over Berman and I predicted a fourth round. Uh, both of those predictions coming through deep analytical methods, <laughs> as uh, listeners may recall. Right. Uh, in the event...
0: It lasted into the sixth. Um, so so it, the, the analytics and the math paid off. There's more math here, you know, two plus four plus equals four, six. six. There you we go. nailed it.
1: Exactly. exactly. Yes. Had there been a third person on the podcast using that same technique, they would have gotten all the points. Probably. <laughs> there you go. Um, but particularly given that Stever clearly set up training camp at Professor Pudding Pot's Academy of Pugilism and Pastries, um, <laughs> is that a demerit for Joyce, the fact that he went that long? Or were you actually fine with the way that he went about his business?
0: Well, I think before we hand out demerits, uh, it's important to say one thing, that Deontay Wilder is an anomaly when it comes right. to punching power. Right. Um, so I'm not saying he's Ernie Shavers, but when all is said and done, Wilder will be remembered as one of the all-time great pure punchers in heavyweight yeah. history. So the fact that he knocked out Stiverne in one round doesn't mean Stiverne is easy to knock out. Right. That said, a 40-year-old, 273-pound Stiverne Two hundred and seventy-three pounds. The the bar is set a little higher when the guy is clearly just there for a paycheck, which Stavern was. Um, to the to an extent, he earned the paycheck that he got by taking six rounds of punishment. Uh, he he stood in there and and took his beating, but, um, his game plan was throw counter right hands, hope to land one big one, and if I don't, I lose. No big deal. Uh, so, given that. I'm slightly disappointed with Joyce needing six rounds to get the job done. It is plain to see that, even though he's now eight and no with eight knockouts, he's not a Deontay Wilder level puncher. Right.
1: right. So what did you make of him? His technique is um interesting. <laughs> um <laughs> nice dramatic pause. Right. It, it, look, it's very obvious when you look at it that is that he has not been boxing very long. He only turns to boxing at twenty two. It's not just that he has a short professional career. Um His hands, to put it mildly, aren't fast. Uh, He doesn't really seem to twerk into his punches, but his hands are clearly heavy. Um, His intent is obviously to just stand in front of you and keep throwing punches until you crumble. Um, There were a couple of flashes there. There were... You know, he did realize that the uppercut was there for him and he switched to that. That was that was kind of nice. But uh, but otherwise, it's, it's what it is, a sort of Al and Morrow are pretty happy with this jab. I don't know. It's It wasn't exactly Lennox Lewis, jab in there. Um, he is only eight to no, but he is 33. Mm-hmm. And given that, I mean, where do you see him? I mean, he's he was talking about fighting one of the big three this year. That's clearly not going to happen or it shouldn't happen. Um <laughs> Uh, can he is there a point do you think he has the ability what is his ceiling can he realistically elevate himself do you think given his age to that kind of world level
0: um you you pointed out the hand speed or, or lack thereof um that that really jumps out and and I hadn't realized it in previous viewings. You know, we'd mm. seen a little of him before, but mm. sometimes not for long enough to, to realize quite what we were looking at. I guess I hadn't realized just how slow fisted Joe Joyce is. Um, and his defense is not good. Um, Al Bernstein said before the fight, watch for his low left hand and, and the right hand of Staverne to land over the top. That was some quality scouting right there because that, uh, that, that was plain to see in the fight that he was open to be hit by those right hands on the plus side. Um, his defensive holes tie in nicely with what seems to be real confidence in his chin, which is good (laughs) to have. Um, and you know, his technique may be lacking. He may telegraph his left hook, but he can throw a lot of punches and keep them coming that work rate for a 260 pounder. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's impressive. And it will give some top 10 heavyweights problems, but as you point out, he he's 33, you kind of have to figure he's only going to change and improve so much, you know, that this is the skill set. These are the strengths and weaknesses. He feels to me like a guy who can maybe be competitive with the elite when, when he's ready, which I would say, as you implied, is not this year. Let's let's not rush it. Uh, he probably shouldn't fight those, uh, those top three guys uh, in 2019. But um, when he's ready, I could see him being competitive with the elite, I don't see him as someone who's going to beat the elite. I'd say in terms of ceiling, I'd say he's in the big baby Miller camp, not the Anthony Mm. Joshua camp. Mm. Mm. Someone who is clearly
1: no longer competitive with the elite or indeed with those below the elite uh, now is Berman Steverne. It's been a very dramatic and rapid fall for him. Um, Given his approach and conditioning for the last couple of fights, uh, the way that you know, he got blown out by Wilder and he just t- he took a beating. I mean, he was just a punching bag. He took a lot of blows. I was a bit concerned about him mm-hmm. uh, uh, on Saturday night. Is it time for Berman, Berman Staverne to find a new job?
0: I, I said it about DeGale. Uh, I'm saying it about Stavern. I, I would like for this to be the end. Uh, but the reasoning is different. DeGale is giving it his best shot and appears not to have it anymore. Right. Stiverne isn't giving it his best shot. Uh, I know that as you get older, it gets harder to keep the weight off, to stay skinny. I get it. The increase from 240 or so pounds for years for the bulk of his career to 250 or 255, that was understandable. But 273, uh, you're just not trying. Uh, and, mm. and if you can't be bothered to train hard for a big fight against an undefeated opponent, it's time to move on. Boxing mm. is dangerous enough That's if you it. aren't cutting corners.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, there are millions of people around the world half-assing their way through their jobs. You're listening to two of them right now, <laughs> but but you're not. But you're not. Most people are not putting their lives on the line by half-assing their way through. Through. Right. Uh, I mean, he's really risking himself there. Um, so yeah, I agree with you.
0: All right. Well, this is a good place to uh, quickly update the scores in our little picks competition. Uh, It was 1917, my lead, coming into the London fights. We each got two points for Joyce by knockout without either of us getting the round correct, despite the uh, creative math I tried to do to give us uh, bonus credit there. Uh, But... Uh, We did have a big swing in the Eubank fight. Uh, You had DeGale by a majority decision. I had Eubank by unanimous decision. So I get three points to zero for you. And the score is now 24-19. And we still haven't figured out what's at stake here. Uh, Now that I'm sitting on a five-point lead, I I say it should be our 2019 salary. End of the year, loser gives the winner every penny here and from uh, from Showtime. Deal?
1: I'm pretty sure that's illegal under some kind of labor
0: law that I just made up. (laughs) All right, fine. Uh, in all seriousness, though, if uh, if any listeners have suggestions for what we should be playing for, uh, hit us up on Twitter, at Eric Raskin, Nat Kieran Mulvaney. One way or another, we should probably sort this out before we get any deeper into the competition. Uh, at this point, we're playing for pride, which is fine, but it would make it fun if we're playing for a little something on top of that. <laughs> Maybe not quite the full salary. Maybe that counts yeah. as more than a little something. But. Yeah, I mean, you know, it could be that the
1: winner get something it doesn't mean that the loser like has to forfeit anything necessarily all
0: right all right just because you're you're losing when that point
1: swing gets reversed somebody somebody may be changing their tune
0: exactly all right so uh moving on in reviewing the london card uh we talked a fair bit there about uh joyce's win over stavern that was not quite the most talked about subject in the heavyweight division over the past week major news broke last monday morning just outside our podcast recording window for last week so we've had a full week to digest it it's time to dig into the stunning news that with the deontay wilder tyson fury rematch seemingly on the verge of being announced for showtime pay-per-view from brooklyn on may 18th to the point that the two of us were already preparing for a special fight announcement podcast right on the doorstep of that fury and promoter frank warren unexpectedly announced that they'd signed a deal with bob arum's top rank to promote the undefeated heavyweight in the United States, and that ESPN was now going to be his network home. So Wilder Fury is not exactly off, but it's definitely not on either. Uh, There's a lot to analyze here, but a good place to start is by laying out our personal interests uh, and, and biases, laying that all out on the table. We are, of course, Showtime contractors, and we were looking forward to covering this fight in depth for Showtime. Uh, So we'll be disappointed if it doesn't happen on Showtime. And all boxing fans should be disappointed if it doesn't happen, period. Kieran, I'm going to put you in a very precarious position here. Go inside Tyson Fury's mind. What do you think his objective and motivation were here? Wow, that's
1: certainly a place to be. (laughs) Do you you
0: need an hour or so and you'll get back to me? No, I'd rather not stay. Um, (laughs) Look, my guess... my
1: guess would be the simple one. It's Arkham's razor for me that um, he did what millions of people around the world are looking to do with their jobs and their lives. And he went for the opportunity that gave him the most guaranteed financial security. Uh, I I doubt that it's much more complicated than that. Um, And and if that is the case, I don't really blame him. Look, especially in boxing promises, get made and promises get broken. Um, People want you to, do a particular fight you have that fight maybe you lose the fight and before you know it you're being tossed aside like a, a used tissue um i think if somebody's offering you a lot of guaranteed money and it's i think our we are understanding that that is what he's being offered um plus let's also be honest uh, the exposure that espn can bring Um, I think Tyson Fury would have been a fool not to take it. Uh, we got the impression that, you know, discussions around the rematch were very close and that those involved can have full reason to be aggrieved, but, um... But no, I, my suspicion is that's what it is. You know, some folks, you hear a few people say, oh, he's ducking Wilder or he's doing ducking this guy. He's already fought the Auntie wilder and he thinks he won the fight. So I really doubt very much that he, and he took his very best punch and got up from it. So I certainly don't think that's the case. I suspect it's probably follow the money. And as simple as that. Um, and look, obviously, as you touched on, there's understandable concern for what this means for the Fury-Wilder rematch. Um, so the fury Bob Arum's side is claiming they still want to make that fight, um, and they have supposedly made an offer to Deontay Wilder. Uh, but Boxing Scene's Keith Eideck uh, reported that the deal that they offered Wilder is for five fights, which includes a fight or two before he takes on Fury. Uh, it would mean Wilder turning his back on Showtime. Um, and then, of course, Arum has not had the best relationship with Deontay Wilder's advisor, Al Heyman. So on the one hand, you almost have to respect... Aram for being all OG again (laughs) and at this point by the way it's pretty clear to me that Aram's goal is to identify what network you and I are working for (laughs) and do his best to undermine the boxing program on that network so so I thought we got on fine I I think he's the most vindictive stoner I know but there you go (laughs) Um, so you, you always have to respect him it was a huge coup, nobody saw it coming Um, you know, and he's gained a stake in the heavyweight division that really he hasn't had for a long time. Um, On the other hand, even though I've just said that I don't think, you know, it was a case on Fury's side of, of, of ducking Wilder, do you think that Fury and Arum perhaps aren't necessarily seriously interested in that Wilder rematch? Certainly not to the extent that the fans were counting on it.
0: All right, so I, I asked you to go inside Fury's mind, and now you're you're partially asking me to do the same. I will yep. I will take a a step in there, uh, scary though it may be. Um, I I have a slightly different view than you do on okay. not not the word ducking. You know, I, I don't want to use that word, but you said you know he got knocked down by his best punch and showed he could get up from it, which is absolutely true. Uh, you still have to wonder if the events of round twelve. Hmm had him thinking about taking easier fights. Uh, I, I'm certainly not saying he's scared. Boxers are rarely scared of each other, but I think you do have to pause and at least question his confidence, whether, whether he got cold feet about fighting Wilder again um, because of how close he came to getting knocked out and hmm. whether that played some role in his decision to go with Aram. Um, although uh, it, that, that is not in any way disagreeing with you saying, follow the money. Uh, right. that, that, I, I agree that that was the primary motivation, but I think that you have to at least pause and think about uh, that, mm. that possibility. Um, as for what Aram is looking to do here, other than make the lives of the, just the two of us uh, more difficult, <laughs> um, I think he likes to play spoiler. Um, yeah. I think he definitely wanted a top heavyweight in his stable at a time when interest in the heavyweight division is rising. Um, I'll say this, and you can call me biased or whatever, but one thing I'm confident of is that making the fights the fans want to see is not what motivates Bob Arum. He's motivated to make money and have power in boxing, and if giving the fans what they want happens along the way, cool by him— Based on what we know about the offer they supposedly made to the Wilder side, it seems like they want it all on their terms. uh, And they're more here, I think, about being able to claim they made an offer than anything else about the offer. Um, I I think to me it feels like reputation control more than really wanting the fight. And maybe they want it, but they want to build to it first except I don't think that applies so well in this case because the first fight built up interest in the rematch better than any interim fight can. Um, And if the goal is to get Fury more exposure first and make him a bigger name in America, I get that. And if he was fighting for a TV audience of like three or four million on ESPN, cool. But if his interim fight or fights are on ESPN+, Plus, then that doesn't really increase his profile. So we'll see what happens, but... To sum up, I'm kind of inclined not to give Aram the benefit of the doubt about his how pure his intentions are here. Yep, yep. Um, but let's t- take a step back and talk about this in the context of the heavyweight division as a whole, uh, or uh, at least in the context of the third man in the three-headed monster atop the weight class, uh, Anthony Joshua. All that boxing fans want to see is some combination of two of these three fighters, Joshua, Wilder, and Fury in the ring together whatever machinations it takes to get there what matters is the fights getting done people don't spend pay-per-view money to read about backroom dealings they pay to watch fights are the fans likely do you think kieran to get one of those three fights they want in 2019 or is this in serious danger of becoming a marking time year for everyone
1: so i was thinking about this i think I think, first of all, we can completely strike Fury Joshua off the list. Um, you were talking about you know, how uh, Aram and ESPN make it clear that they want things to be on their terms, right. and they do. And there's no way that Matchim or Dezone are blinking either with regard to uh, uh, AJ. Dazone is throwing money at Joshua and Canelo in particular, not just because... You know, people will subscribe to see those guys fight. But because they're building a platform and they're trying to make a statement that if you pay your monthly thing for the DAZN, zone's what you need. And and you don't necessarily need anything else. And we're big players. Um, and the moment they acquiesce and say, let AJ go to go onto ESPN um they significantly weaken that pitch and in that case and their entire pitch is predicated on the notion of not doing pay-per-views so it's really difficult to see a way in which they could work with either espn or pbc to do like some kind of joint pay-per-view or something like that um so i have a really hard time seeing a scenario certainly in the short term in which we see aj and, and tyson fury um i i could still s- picture a scenario in which ESPN and Showtime could combine in a joint pay-per-view, but mm-hmm. not necessarily this year. But again, I think, and I think you're really onto something here. There's also, it's, Bob Aram didn't do this to make it easy for Showtime to work with ESPN to do a deal, right? That's not, that's I, I completely agree with you, actually, that that's not his motivation right. here. Um, so, you know, so in many respects, I think that the the wild card, if you will, is wilder. Um, a lot depends on what he wants to do, what platform he's contracted to fight, where he wants to fight, who he wants to fight, and when. Um, that we'll see, but it does feel, to answer directly your question, as if boxing has shot itself in the foot again here. Mm-hmm. Um, just as the heavyweight division was really building up ahead of steam, and largely because of Deontay Wilder's last couple of fights, as well as uh, uh, you know what was left from AJ's win over Klitschko, um, in particular – the, the Wild of Fury first fight, it was really building up ahead of steam. And it does feel as if, yeah, 2019 is at best to be a marking time year. And let's hope that we look at it as a marking time year, as an extra space between the, the big fights of 2018 and say in 2020, and not the year in which the heavyweight division managed to just commit harry giri again (laughs) right um so in the meantime though we do know what aj's got coming up uh he is fighting Jarrell big baby miller on june 1st that's a fight that we've talked about on previous episodes of the podcast but their press tour kicked off last week and it kicked off quite dramatically uh featured some pushing and shoving and trash talk uh and a lot of people believing there's some real bad blood between these two guys eric uh did you see that and what's your read about it all
0: I did see it, and uh, I'm going to steal from my own Twitter feed here uh, where (laughs) I was sort of joking but also sort of being serious when I said that in situations like this, if the fight is on a network that employs me, I'm inclined to take the beef seriously. And if not, (laughs) I'm skeptical and you'd have to be a total sucker to fall for it. Uh, So maybe that's what's guiding me here. But it does feel staged to me. I don't see why these guys would actually hate each other. And I know Big Baby is good at talking, and he can't help but jaw with the other guy and talk smack. They want to sell the fight. That's what I think is happening here. Uh, and honestly, that's what's usually happening when you see something like this. If you always just come down on the side of, of guessing that the bad blood is fabricated, you'll be right much more <laughs> often than you'll be wrong. Um I make an exception for a fight that I have to sell on podcasts for several weeks leading up to it. But you'll always look smarter by being a skeptic. That's true of almost anything in life. Um, So through both genuine gut feeling and personal biases, I'm not buying this beef. Do you have a different read on it?
1: no uh i know big baby a little bit um interviewed him quite a few times hung out with him quite a few times with hbo over the last couple of years i like him i don't think there's a bad bone in that giant guy's body Mm. um or a mean bone in that guy's body uh this is a guy who after he knocked out thomas adamek went to adamek's hotel room in tears to apologize um I am 100% with you. Jarell has made a calculated decision to get in Joshua's grill, um, possibly with the intent to not just pit, sell the fight, but maybe to rile up Joshua in the process. Um, you know, he got right in his face at the, the Zone launch event last year. Um, there was no particular talk at that point of those guys facing off, but he made a point of doing something similar without the big shove that he did uh, the other day. Um, did it again at the Garden. He does know, I think, probably that few people give him a chance. He knows also that a lot of British fans don't even really know who he is. um, And he's trying to make the case for himself as a realistic, dangerous opponent. And if in the process he's able to, like, knock AJ a little bit off center... So much the better. Um, I guess it's possible. Some speculated that it was just the case of the occasion getting to him. And I guess that's possible, but I don't think so. I think it's calculated. Uh, so I d- definitely think that Miller, halbers is no bad blood toward AJ. I'm not completely convinced that AJ isn't starting to get a little pissed <laughs> off at Miller.
0: <laughs> right. Could be. <laughs> All right, uh, in one significant piece of news this week outside the heavyweight division, uh, Vasily Lomachenko's next fight has been signed. We already knew he had the April 12th date. Now we know that it will be in Los Angeles on ESPN+, and the opponent is Anthony Crolla. There were a couple of waves of reaction on boxing social media. First, there was a lot of, ugh, that's not a competitive fight. Then there was some response to that in the form of, well, Krola's a top 10 guy at lightweight. Who else is Lomachenko supposed to fight? Where do you fall on that spectrum? Are you okay with Lomachenko-Krola? Not okay with Lomachenko-Krola? More than okay with Lomachenko-Krola? Where are you?
1: I think it's perfectly fine, particularly given that it's a replacement fight. That mm. um, that the, They weren't going into this to make a Krola fight. It's just that the the opponent fell through and, and uh, Comey fell through and they had to try and do something. Um I just think we judge Lomachenko differently. I think if most other lightweights have said, I'm going to fight Anthony Kroll, I'd be oh, yeah, okay. That's a pretty good test. Um, but with Lomachenko, I'm reminded of the saying that Carl Sagan often had. As you know, I like to drop astrophysical references <laughs> into the boxing podcast whenever possible,
0: as he would frequently observe. Ex- and, and and you do live alone, <laughs> as I you've do, noted. I do, do live alone.
1: <laughs> I spend weeks working, finding a way to work this in.
0: Um <laughs>
1: As he would frequently observe, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And for those who are skeptical of the notion that Lomachenko is something extraordinary, there is demand for him to face someone against whom he could he could prove that. But unfortunately, that desire is rarely satiated because he keeps comfortably, generally, defeating every challenge that comes in front of him. I, I think crawler is a perfectly serviceable replacement opponent he went reasonably close against the jorge Linares a couple of times and those are his only defeats since march 2012 crawler won't beat lomachenko and he may not actually give him too much of a fight but that doesn't mean that he sucks as a fighter it's just that not very many people have a legitimate shot at beating vasily lomachenko and assuming that um that everything gets back on board and uh, and comey is ready to go again later he'll fight him which i think is a more interesting fight and this is a replacement fight and i think in the context it's just fine
0: well my reaction to this fight getting signed can be revealed uh, much much more quickly than yours i can be much much more brief about it my reaction shoulder shrug emoji
1: yeah that's reasonable
0: i mean that's fine Boy, you wasted all that time when all, when all you had to do was both of us just say shoulder shrug emoji.
1: <laughs> I'm pretty sure I get paid by the word. I'm not quite sure what your <laughs> deal is.
0: Oh, well, then I take back shoulder <laughs> shrug emoji, and I'd like to expound on that.
1: Too late. Mister chance. <laughs> okay, a couple of other fights from Saturday to look at briefly before we move on. Um, Saturday may have been the last fight for one super middleweight, uh, James DeGale, and another one. Uh, Anthony Durrell had said there was a real chance that his bout Saturday on Fox Sports 1 against Avni Yildirim might be his last. But after securing a technical split decision win after 10 rounds and a scheduled 12 rounder that was cut short because Durrell was bleeding badly from an accidental headbutt, he figured he just may stick around for one more fight or two. Given that your buddy, Caleb Plant, was sitting ringside doing commentary and a matchup with him could certainly prove lucrative before he sells off into the horizon. I, I have to ask, if that happens, are you going to bet against, A, are you
0: going to bet against <laughs> Plant again? And B, are you going to tell him? <laughs> no, I listen, I promised him I would not bet against him again so at the very least if I do it I'm not going to tell him um but no I I, I don't even I don't think I I would and I, I would probably favor plant in that fight so that's one more good reason not to bet against him but uh this this Darrell Yildirim fight was pretty entertaining very close um had an inconclusive ending with the technical All decision right. after nine and a half rounds so I know that they're talking about Durrell versus plant or possibly Benavides. but to me this Kind of screams right. rematch. Uh, I, I I say do Durrell Yildirim again once the cut heals. Um, just as an aside, also, who would have thought earlier in their careers that Anthony Durrell would be a factor in the title picture longer than his brother Andre? Yeah, right. You know? yeah. A- Andre's had a weird career, and there Very were certainly strange. extenuating circumstances yep. ever since that fight with Arthur Abraham. But But Anthony was always the less gifted of the two, yep. and he's still trucking along, so good for yep. him. Yep. Yeah. Um,
1: talking to trucking along. Um, also on Saturday, as we mentioned at the top of the show in the main event of a DAZN card from Tijuana, Umberto Soto overcoming Brandon Rios in a battle uh, of the aged. Um, look, throughout these careers, both these guys have been known for exciting fights. Um, and even here at what should be the very end of those careers, I mean, they laid absolutely everything on the line. They beat the snot out of each other for 12 rounds, but Soto beat that much more snot out of Rios than the other way around. He had that much more left. He had the faster hands. He had the better combinations. He had the agility and ability. Um, Rios kept chugging after him, but a a clear, uh, clear loser, Soto thoroughly deserving uh the wide unanimous decision did you see it and uh what did you think about that
0: yeah it, it was it was fun but before before i get into the fight um i want to just start with the physical appearance because uh, that's the first thing that jumped out at you and what i referenced at the top of the show with the not looking so good with their shirts off and all that they both had spare tires uh and Soto's hairline is not so inspiring to look at. That was, he had like the sort of middle management. Kind yes. Of, uh. I was going to say he has a bit of a time to make the donuts guy thing going on. <laughs> um, but uh, despite the way that he looks, he can still fight. Uh, yeah. our, our, our friend uh, Brian Campbell likes to call these fights sloppy Super Bowls. Uh, that's what it was. It was sloppy, but it was really fun to watch uh, Soto, 38 years old pro for more than 21 years was at his best as a featherweight probably uh but wow he, he brought it he can still rumble uh i mean this is a guy who made the leap when he scored a big upset win over then undefeated rocky juarez in 2005 uh that's that's how long he's been doing this he looks like he'd still be a tough out for, yeah. for a fringe contender um but this was a fun if lopsided fight although you kind of had to have some mixed feelings watching it as I know you did based yep. on our DM exchanges earlier today. Yeah, uh, definitely felt a little bit
1: dirty. Mm-hmm. Um definitely it was it was the definition of a guilty pleasure, really. Yeah. Uh um to me I I thought the Rios, you know, as much as he kept chugging forward very clearly lost. He looked shocked actually uh, at the decision, which is certainly not atypical of any fighter, but right. um so I'm not sure that he would... Based on that, I think he might feel that maybe he was competitive and he's, and he's going to keep on going. I, I would hate... I, there comes a point where you hate for fighters, any fighter, to go on too long. And, and Soto looked really good against uh, uh, an old Brandon Rios, uh, if he's going to keep going on, and I'm sure both of them are smart enough to do this, they need to be real careful about who they fight uh, if they're going to continue fighting this. Let's not, let's not start getting any real 154-pound world title aspirations here.
0: Right, right. So before we move on, let me, let me hit you with a, a tough question. I'm, I'm putting you on the spot uh, that you haven't been prepared at all in advance. This was okay. just something that uh, crossed through my mind watching the fight. Assuming their careers are both over, or at least effectively over, who had the better career, Brandon Rios or Victor Ortiz? Oh, I would say absolutely Brandon Rios. I okay. think. Okay. All right, you answered it pretty quickly. All right. Yeah, um,
1: I would say so. He's got at least you know a, a, a definitive win or two, and Victor just always flattered to deceive. I was I was very high on Victor right. earlier, and I like Victor Ortiz, by the way. I should say he's a personal friend, but. Um, no, I would say ha- it would have to be Brandon. Okay. do
0: you think? Yeah, I was leaning that way. I mean, I've sort- there are a lot of parallels in that they each got, you know, one of them got the big fight against Mayweather. The other got the big fight against Pacquiao. So they each got one of those way- in way over their head against the super duper star. Uh, and uh, they both made thrilling fights. They both were in fight of the year contenders a, a handful of times. Um, I guess the you know, I, I'd have to look at their resumes kind of side by side. But I, I guess that uh, if all else was equal, you'd have to give Rios credit for always gutting it out in tough fights, whereas Victor yeah. Ortiz did not always gut it out when the fights got tough.
1: It is a shame the fight never happened. Um, You know, mm-hmm. for those who don't know, there was the the Kansas background. There was the fact that victor was part of robert garcia's gym for a while and then wasn't and then there was a big falling out there was took talk, we talked earlier about grudge matches this there was so much legitimate beef and grudge here that it felt at some point that this was a fight that had to happen and it never did uh, now i don't want to see it but um right. but yeah this was a fight that yeah it's unfortunate that it didn't happen yeah So, hey, so let's uh, talk about this coming weekend's fight. Uh, uh, So normally what we would do here is run down some of the significant non-Showtime fights on the calendar. But with all due respect to all the pugilists around the world who are fighting this coming weekend, there's really nothing very significant in terms of the non-Showtime fights for us to really break down. So um, let's get right to it. Let's get to our preview of the March 2nd Showtime Championship Boxing card uh, from the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, we were scheduled to have a triple header kicking off with Super Featherweight action involving Edna Cherry against Ricardo Nunez. Um, but reportedly, Cherry suffered a health scare a few days ago. He's off the card. Nunez is still on the card, but not on Showtime. Um, we wish Cherry the very best. We hope that his health is fine uh, going forward. And so instead, we are kicking off with. Heavyweight action and the man who came up just short against one of the guys we've talked about a lot already, Deontay Wilder, in arguably the most dramatic fight of all of 2018, Luis Ortiz, taking on Christian Hammer. And in the main event, which is where we will focus most of our attention, Erislandy Lara, who also fell just short in what many experts named the 2018 fight of the year against Jarrett Hurd meets undefeated Brian Castaño for a super welterweight slash junior middleweight belt uh the cuban lara is 35 he's fighting for the first time since that violent split decision lost to herd 11 months ago um the lara we saw against herd was a much more exciting version of the american dream than we'd ever seen before maybe the angulo fight was pretty good but that's about it right um so is this a new lara is that the lara that you're hoping nay expecting even (laughs) to see on saturday against castellano
0: Yeah, that's the big question. Was the thriller against Herd a fluke, or is mid 30s Lara a guy who's going to be more fun to watch than he used to be? Um, Without getting too deep into the Castaño analysis yet, let's just say the Argentine is an aggressive fighter. So even if the Herd fight was a fluke, it might prove to be a repeatable fluke. Uh, Lightning could easily strike twice here. Uh, But focusing on Lara. We all know he had a reputation for making dull fights, which was somewhat deserved. He also had a few good ones uh, that people have have forgotten about. Um, His breakout fight, fans will remember, came in 2011 against Paul Williams when Lara was the lesser-known fighter and the underdog, and he dished out a beating and was on the wrong end of a decision so egregious it got the judges suspended. He had that very fun fight that you mentioned against Alfredo Angulo. Um, His fight against Canelo was not... Very entertaining to watch, but it was close. He lost a a, really a coin flip decision against Canelo. He had a few stinkers mixed in there, unquestionably. Uh, But one thing he's never suffered uh, is a one-sided loss. Even the, even the herd fight was a one point split decision. Um, But that was a grueling fight. We can't know yet if it took something out of him. And that's something else that we'll be watching Mm. for uh, on Saturday night in Brooklyn. Uh, One thing that's been made clear in Lyra's career is that he'll fight top competition without hesitating. And in Castaño, Lara is facing his third undefeated opponent in a row. Castaño had a strong amateur career and is now 15-0 as a pro. American audiences are largely unfamiliar with Castaño, as he's fought just twice in the U.S. in an eight-rounder and a six-rounder, both back in 2015. Kieran, what can you tell the rookie Castaño viewer about the man known as El Boxy? Well, first of all, El Boxy
1: is not just a way to remind himself what it is that he does for a living. It's actually, it turns out, the contraction of the name of a uh, cartoon boxing kangaroo that was popular in Argentina at the time when he started the box. So there you go. Um, One other thing that I think folks will clearly be happy to know about this guy so he can legit fight um mm-hmm. as you mentioned he had an extensive amateur record a really good one during which he claims he went 179 five and five which is uh, not slouchy at all mm-hmm. um and those 179 amateur victories include a winner over errol spence um he also fought in the is it amateur or is it professional yeah. world series of boxing right. um picked up three wins there including over surgaid so he's. The guy can clearly fight. Um, The problem is that the good names kind of disappeared once he turned officially professional. His his resume is not filled with with glittering names, to put it mildly. Uh, And he has been inactive, uh, partly by design, partly not. He fought just once in 2017, after which he and his team wanted him to have a break for a while. And just once in 2018, like Lara, it was 11 months ago. um, They hoped to have made this fight with Lara earlier they they hope to have two fights in 2018 the second one being being this one they thought it would be in november and then december Uh, it's been bumped to march they're not really happy about that um as for what the kind of the kind of fighter who he is um in contrast to the crafty cuban as you said he appears to be a much more aggressive fighter the guy from argentina um he says he's not a brawler he refers to himself as an explosive boxer but the question is obviously you know whether Jarrett Hurd could use that to his advantage to bring the fight out of Erislandi Lara. It's We don't know whether the skill, the explosive boxing ability of Castaño uh, as a professional is enough to do that. Um, he's clearly not a pushover, but it is nonetheless biggest test he's had since those World Series of Boxing days. Mm-hmm. A huge step up for him. Uh, don't give away your prediction for the fight. We're going to save the predictions for our next podcast, which we're going to have after the weigh-in, before the fight uh, on Friday sometime. Without giving that away, is there is there potential for this being one of those proverbial biting off more than he can chew fights?
0: Uh, could be. I, I like a lot of what I see out of Castaño. Yeah. Uh, he's compact. He goes to the body well. He's quick fisted. Yep. He's aggressive uh, to the point that he's sometimes kind of out of control. Uh, few, a few few of the clips of him feature him uh, throwing a punch and falling over himself in pursuit <laughs> of his opponent. Um, And that might play right into a savvy veteran Southpaw like Lara's hands here's the telling fight on Castaño's pro resume. His previous biggest step up was against Michel Soro in 2017. I think we can all agree that Soro is no Lara, and Castaño eked by on a split decision in a legitimately close fight. Soro isn't the same style as Lara. He isn't even a southpaw, but there are some vague similarities in terms of boxing skill. Castaño was just barely able to chew what he bit off in sorrow right so based on that yes there is at least potential for castaño to find out early on against lara that oh i'm i'm in over my head here that, that that could happen but i like his style and uh, he fights with a certain self-belief so i also wouldn't wouldn't by any means rule out the possibility that he's going to be right up in there uh, going blow for blow with lara yeah. Um, so we talked about 130 something championship-level Cuban-born Southpaw. Let's talk about another. Uh, if we believe Luis King Kong Ortiz is 30-something, that's a subject yeah. of much <laughs> debate. Officially, <laughs> yeah, he is listed as 39 these days. Um, unlike Lara, Ortiz has stayed busy since his devastating loss last year to Wilder, uh, knocking out both Razvan Kojanu and Travis Kaufman. Now he takes on Christian Hammer, who seems somewhere around that same level of opponent? Am I wrong about that, Kieran? Is Hammer in fact more of a test than Kojanu and Kaufman? And what's the end game here for Ortiz? In other words, how does he fit into the heavyweight mix relative to that Wilder Fury Joshua Triad that we've talked about? Uh, I guess you could make a case
1: that Hammer's a smidgen above those guys. Um but it's a smidgen. Um, yeah. he, he has victories against decent-ish opposition, although often faded opposition. A, a very faded Danny Williams, David Price he knocked out a, a year or two ago. Uh, in the last seven years or so, though, he's only lost to Alexander Povetkian and Tyson Fury. So that's not bad. No. Um, uh, although if you do go back a few years, he did also lose to Marius Falk whom we recently saw looking less than impressive against big baby Miller. Um, so he's solid, but he'll also be a very solid underdog against Ortiz who, yeah. um, we almost forget it was not long ago. And I think we might've even speculated about this on a previous podcast was considered possibly the best heavyweight out there. Yeah. Um, and who, uh, you know, as you mentioned came, gosh, he came real close to getting Deontay <laughs> Wilder out of there in yeah. their fight last year. He came real close before eventually succumbing. Um, and he's still one of the leaders of that pack, right behind the top three, you know, up there with Dillion White and Big Baby Miller. He, he's right up there. Um, I think, what's the end game? I think he just needs to keep himself winning and ready to go for when that situation that we talked about, that lack of clarity at the very top of those big three, resolves itself. Um, I guess the ideal scenario for him would be to try to get a rematch with Wilder if Wilder Fury 2 can't come to fruition. Um, although, you know, we talked about Fury maybe being reticent about fighting Wilder again. Wilder himself might be reticent to do that while the prospect of an AJ fight or a Fury rematch is out there. Um, he'd be a fantastic but very dangerous opponent for any of the top guys, and therein lies what has always been his biggest problem. <laughs> yep. He's very, very dangerous. It's an awful risk facing him. Wilder got away with it, and he almost didn't. Um You know, maybe one of the other guys will make the calculation that that while the battle may have taken something out of him um, and they may, you know, maybe they'll just wait him out until, you know, he finally hits 50 or something. I don't know. Um, uh, He's he's just got to wait for another opportunity. If he were just that wee bit less dangerous, he might have been getting another opportunity already. All right. Well, this is our first podcast of the week, but it is not our last. We shall be back, as mentioned, on Friday afternoon following the uh, Lara Castaño weigh-in. We shall chat some more about this card, make our official predictions. I shall claw back my five-point deficit.
0: (laughs) I shall widen the lead. I shall widen it. Until then, thanks as always
1: for listening.